Well, if you've gone through with us um, in our membership uh, at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose, the Harvest and Hospitality membership, and if you're thinking about going through it, there's a book that we use, and that book uh, is called Conversion. It's a nine marks book, and those of you who've been through it, you've got to go and answer the little booklets, but it's taken from a book uh, done by Michael Lawrence out of nine marks, and I wanted to begin this morning by reading a portion of the introduction to that, <clears throat> because as we think about conversion and as we come into the Sermon on the Mount, what we're really considering is what Jesus has to say about what the Christian life is about. What is the Christian life about? Is it about children's church? Is it about gathering? What is it really about? Well, Michael Lawrence writes this in his introduction. He says, recently, I was talking to one of my friends about two of his adult kids. He's worried about them. They're not into drugs or partying. They went to excellent universities and excelled. If they were your kids, you would be proud of them. Still, you'd be worried because neither of them seems to have the slightest interest in Jesus Christ. And to make matters more difficult, both of them identify themselves as Christians. They were raised in the church they were active in youth group. They prayed the sinner's prayer. They were baptized. And when they went off to college, they kept the nice moral behavior they'd learned at church. But they basically left Jesus behind. You understand why my friend is worried. He has nice kids who are convinced that they don't need Jesus because they already have him. And yet the more he watches their adult lives unfold, the less and less confident he is that they even know Jesus at all. And then on page 17, he sums this up. He says, you might say they were nice, but not new. Not new creations in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, whether we are nice or not, According to God's word, all our lives, all our hearts, all our kingdoms are naturally lives and hearts and kingdoms of darkness and depravity and curse that God in his word has promised personally to damn and to destroy. And according to his word, what we so desperately, desperately need is not a nice life, it's not a better version of ourselves or the best version of ourselves. What we so desperately need is a new heart, a new life, a new king, a new kingdom, and a new covenant and a new peace with the eternal and holy creator of the universe, the God who made us. We need, in short, a new beginning. And the good news of God's word and the good news of the Sermon on the Mount and the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is this is the heart and life and kingdom that Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of God's word brings. This is why he came into the world. This is why he died. He didn't die to make you and I nice. He died to make you and I new and to bring us into a new life and a new kingdom that is different from the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms that we were born into and the kingdoms so often that we serve. And as we come 
to Matthew chapter 5, which is where Jesus comes and he proclaims what this new life in his kingdom is all about. And as we listen to what he has to say, it's very, very clear, and we've said this last week, it's very, very clear that by the world standards, it's not all nice. There are some nice portions, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart. But poverty of spirit, mourning, persecution for righteousness sake, these are hardly the hallmarks of a nice life. What they are, according to King Jesus, these are the hallmarks of a new life in his kingdom. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, he sums up this life and these hallmarks with one word. And that includes poverty of spirit and being persecuted for his name's sake and mourning. He sums them up with one word. And that word, which we learned last week, is blessed. Blessed. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? And we'll read verses 1 through 12. And as we read through this, understand that this morning Jesus is speaking to you. And consider as you hear these hallmarks of the life of Christ and the life of a Christian, what the Christian life is all about, it's worth thinking in our own lives, is this me? Is this me or is it not me? Matthew 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Well, what's Jesus talking about here? And how do these words in the 21st century, how do they apply to you and I? As we consider them, Jesus points us to words and terms that are ground and anchored, not in our contemporary society, but in the Word of God. And it helps to appreciate what he's saying by remembering the context a little bit. Because these, as we've said before, are words that really get taken out of context many times. And as we consider the context... Let's go back just briefly to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew records for us an earlier divine declaration. But it begins not with a blessing, it begins with a curse. Matthew 3, verse 7. It's a divine curse that's being pronounced by John the Baptist. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And this indicative, if you will, 
is followed by a command, a divine command. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the irony here is that John the Baptist is addressing a group of people who are considered by most first century Jews to be the good guys. In fact, recent scholarship, as it goes back and looks at Second Temple Judaism in this time, they've said, oh, Martin Luther got it wrong. Evangelicals have it wrong. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the good guys. And if you read the literature at that time, they were the holy ones. That's one interpretation of the word Pharisee. They were considered to be the heirs of God's kingdom. They were the blessed of God, according to first century Judaism. And most people looked at them in this way. They had the good life that was successful, not only on a religious level, but also a socioeconomic level. And people looked at them as the validation of their living and doing God's word the right way. And that's why they're successful. And that's why they're blessed. They're the nice people. They're the respectable people. They're the people who you want to date your daughters and marry them and bring them into a nice life in Palestine. Could I have my next PowerPoint, please? In contrast to the Pharisees and Sadducees, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is addressing Jews who are not so respectable. In fact, the most respectable among them are Galilean fishermen, which is not saying much according to Second Temple Judaism standards. And by most accounts, these men were rough. And as you read their stories through the Gospels, you see even while they were with Jesus, they were rough. Why did Jesus spend time with them? Why did he set them apart, really, to reign with him in his kingdom? How did God use these men to transform the world? Well, in the eyes of Jesus, these are men whose hearts and lives have been radically transformed and changed by the grace of God. And that, brothers and sisters, is what being a Christian and life in God's kingdom is all about. I love Sunday school, but it's not all about that. I love ministry, but it's not all about that. Brothers and sisters, it's about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His grace in our lives transforming and changing us into His image, into something totally different and new. Something that we could never accomplish on our own. Our niceness is never good enough. But Jesus is. And in Matthew 3 through 4, Matthew shows us the proof and the path of a life that's transformed by God's grace. A life that's transformed by Christ's presence. Doing a mighty work in the life of a sinner. And it begins in Matthew chapter 3 with confession and conviction. True confession, true conviction of sinfulness. That we're not worthy for the kingdom of God. And that's with John's baptism. And it's also shown by true repentance and faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. But it continues as a life of repentance and faith in Christ that results for the disciples in a joyful leaving of everything this world has to offer. 
work, friends, family if necessary, anything that separates them from being with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean you all have to sell your homes and join an ashram and join a monastery, but for the disciples, it's whatever is separating you from being with Jesus. And in our day and age, brothers and sisters, it's a whole lot more than we care to think. But these men do it joyfully, without regret, without sorrow, and they do it in order to follow and obey and be with Jesus as their Lord and King. And what follows as we read the rest of the Gospels and we look at the history of the world and the church is a life that follows Jesus, a new life of enduring faithfulness to Christ and His Word. A new life of enduring faithfulness to Christ and His Word. This is their life that continues and continues. And frequently in this life, it is hard. Frequently, it is difficult. Frequently, it is discouraging as you read the Apostle Paul's epistles. Frequently, it's heartbreaking. But, brothers and sisters, that's life in this world as a citizen who awaits the coming of Christ where our citizenship is in heaven and not in the things of this world. And this is the new life of gospel grace that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the men he's speaking to and from the beginning he's showing them and I love Jesus. He doesn't sort of suck you in and get you to sign up and then you find out later what you signed up for. He shows them right from the beginning what this life of grace is all about from beginning to end. And he sums up this life that frequently is not going to be nice for these men with one word. And that word is blessed. Could I have my next slide, please? In Matthew 5, 1 through 12, with the Beatitudes, Jesus' divine declaration of blessing is teaching his disciples what the hallmarks of this new life are. He's showing them very, very clearly, blow by blow by blow with each one. And when I say hallmark here, I want you, I want to disavow you of the American notion of hallmark, which are sappy greeting cards and a sappy cable network with sappy shows. The definition of hallmark by definition from Great Britain is a stamp, an official stamp on precious metals, on jewelry and instruments that identifies the origin, the authenticity, and the purity of the precious metals that receive this stamp. It lets us know the quality and where it is from. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 12, what Jesus is providing us with, He's is providing us with these stamps of what true blessing is. And of course we need to know that right? Because like we talked about last week. So much of our lives are geared towards viewing blessing. In the way the world views blessing. Which is strictly through the lens of material and socioeconomic success. But Jesus is coming and saying my kingdom has a very different economy. And it has a very different king. And it's a kingdom, an economy that's built on my truth and grace. My righteousness. This is what matters to the Lord. This is the money that counts. I remember as a child, I remember as a child visiting, coming from Canada, as I told you, and I'd save up all my money so I could go to a toy store because at that time we didn't have these massive Toys R Us, which is now out of business, toy stores in Canada. 
And I'd come with my uncles and my aunties and they'd take us there and we'd find different things and I'd have this grip of Canadian dollars and say, well, I'll pay for it, I've saved up. And my uncle and my aunties would laugh and they'd look at the Canadian money, all the different colors, and they would say, well, that's funny money here. You know, it, you're not going to get very much here with that. And Jesus is pointing out as we come into his kingdom, his economy of blessing and what is pleasing to the Lord, what's in the world, it doesn't matter because the things that please God, men hate. And the things that God hates, men highly esteem. And so he gives us these hallmarks, these stamps of what blessing, what true grace, the quality, something that shows the origin, the quality of this life is indeed coming from the Lord. And not the things of this world. And, and brothers and sisters, man, in the American church, do we so desperately need that, right? I mean, we think just because someone's been to a seminary or they're a pastor, that their lives are filled with grace. And that's hogwash, right? The quality, the stamp, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the testimony of His Word. That's what we need to see. And we'd be a lot less disappointed if we looked at Christ and His Word rather than celebrity even in the church. And as we come to Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus points out that the very first hallmark of a life that is new and a life that is blessed, a life that is transformed by the grace of God, the very first hallmark is a quality that is hated and reviled by the kings and kingdoms and religions of this world. And this is because it's a hallmark that celebrates God's goodness and grace in our lives. And it's what Jesus calls poor of spirit. Poor of spirit. And this brings us to the point that we have up here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does Jesus mean by poverty of spirit or poor in spirit? Is he pointing us to Mother Teresa? Is she the gold standard of what we have to be if we're going to be blessed? Or is he pointing to the suffering and poor of the world of the social gospel? Or is he pointing us to the clinically depressed? Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we're going to spend most of our time considering what God's word has to say about what it means to be spiritually poor or poor in spirit or poverty in spirit. And the reason we're going to spend the time doing this first obviously is because this is a term that we're not terribly familiar with as 21st century Christians. But also as you go through and you'll see that Jesus does this in the word of the Lord. When lists are given, not uncommonly the very first in the list can be the most important or the primary. And as you walk through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that all the other Beatitudes and hallmarks, they very much build upon poverty of spirit. A poverty of spirit that comes from God and is very different than the way it's been interpreted, especially in the social gospel movement. Now in Greek, this word for poor that's used... Or poverty. It comes from a word that means, or a verb that means to crouch or to cower, to bow down low, or to bow down timidly. New Testament scholar Charles Quarles writes this term was used to describe the posture of beggars in the ancient world holding out cups and waiting for passers by to spare a few coins. And beggars in the ancient world typically were disabled. 
They had, as we would term them today, special needs. They were handicapped and they were a class and group of people who were unable to fend for themselves. They were unable to care for themselves. But they were also considered to be and considered themselves unworthy of honor in their society. They were low, low socioeconomic, but there was this notion that they were shameful people. They were not worthy of holding any position of honor or importance. They were unable to do the basic things in life, which is even just take care of your family or work for yourself. And so frequently as you'd walk through in the ancient world, they would not even insult you by looking at you in the eye. They would cower down and look down. Well, this verb that was used to describe this, it became synonymous with being destitute, with being dependent, with being low, with being a person who is entirely dependent on the mercy and grace of others for the most basic necessities of life. It's a good description. But it's worth noting that Jesus adds two other words to this. He doesn't just leave it at poor. In Luke's gospel, it's written as poor. But contextually, you'll see Luke, Matthew, and Matthew as he writes, and Jesus, he puts poor in spirit. And he makes the emphasis here on spiritual poverty, on spiritual destitution, on spiritual dependency, on spiritual unworthiness, on spiritual brokenness. And it's the condition of being spiritually destitute, spiritually unworthy, spiritually dependent in relationship to God. In relationship to God. In His kingdom and in His economy of truth and grace. His economy of righteousness. Of being spiritually bankrupt. And it's not surprising that Jesus emphasizes this in Matthew 5 and 3 because this is the way the Old Testament scriptures emphasize what poor was all about. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament uses the word poor in a holistic way, not just socioeconomic. It was a description of the whole person, including their spiritual position. And it was a technical term that was used in the Old Covenant. The use of that term, poor, referred to much more than just how much money you had in your pocket. And it was a term that you're familiar. It did include people who were financially poor or struggling, but it referred to people who were, and we read about them this morning, widows, orphans, the fatherless. And in contrast to the poor of the kingdoms of this world, in contrast to the poor of the nations, in contrast to the nations around them. In God's word, when they referred to the poor, they were talking about the poor who were members of the covenant community, the old covenant, members of God's chosen people. And that term poor, when it was used with regards to Israelites, it referred to a specific group of people who were characterized by being weak, by being lowly, by being needy and vulnerable in this life and this world. Not because of bad luck, not because of poor financial planning, but specifically because of their relationship with God. Specifically because of their relationship with God. And according to God's word, the 
poor of God's people possessed a special place in God's heart. They possessed a special place in his promises. As you see, there are promises over and over again. They possessed a special place in God's kingdom. And you see that even as we read this morning, I think Steve in Deuteronomy, and you'll see it repeatedly, where God calls upon the people to care for the fatherless, the widows, the orphans. James talks about what true religion is. They are special mentioned, not forgotten, not invisible. It's like, hey, this is a priority for you to take care of these people. Why? Because they are precious and highly esteemed by the Lord. Now let's understand the context. That's within the context of people living in relationship to God and who are poor globally, holistically, because specifically their relationship with God. Okay? As we see, why is it that God held these people in such high esteem? Well, first, they were needy people who humbly and desperately looked to the Lord and looked to His promises and look to his grace to be their protector and their savior and king. That was what this community was. The poor, the widows, the orphans. These were the people who specifically did not have a physical or earthly protector. And they were looking entirely, their entire dependence, their entire protection, their entire safety net. It wasn't the government. It wasn't a welfare program. It was the word of the Lord. Because that's the only place you could go as a poor person. If you needed food, if you needed help, if you needed to get a loan. Hey, you had to go to the elders at the front of the gate. You had to say, look, this is what the word of the Lord says. You're supposed to take care of me. You had to appeal to the word of the Lord. God was and is your protector. As opposed to being self-sufficient, independent, and looking to men and money and kings to find your way in this world. And it's not surprising that as you look at the lives of, quote-unquote, the poor of God's people, the poor because of God, you see a community of people whose lives are characterized by waiting for the promises of God and praying and being, many of them, intimately acquainted with the promises of God. Think Hannah. Think Mary. Think Elizabeth. Okay, these ladies who were intimately aware of the promises of God and what they didn't have and how the Lord was the only one who could provide for them. Praying and waiting for the Lord. So why does the Lord hold such people in such high esteem? Well, first and foremost, it's because the poor of the Lord are people whose characteristics and life is a demonstration of the greatness of God's grace. They are a people after God's own heart. And this is what God created us to be. And this brings us to our next point. And if I could have my next slide, please. In love, the Lord God created His children to be blessed by His goodness and grace. In love, the Lord God created His children to be blessed by His goodness and grace. Brothers and sisters, God is a good father. 
And from the beginning, this was God's plan. This is what God did. He created us to know his blessing. He created us to know his goodness. He created us to know his love. And he created us to know this progressively. As with our children, we don't expect our children when they're born that they would know everything about us. But the joy is over a course of life as they grow, they become mature and they begin to understand and appreciate hopefully who their parents are and what they've done and the love they have and the sacrifices that have been made. God created his children to know who he is, to know his love, and he created them to be blessed by his goodness and grace. So you see this in Genesis 1.28, after God makes the first man and woman in his image. And I have the verse up here. And God blessed them. He's already made them after his image. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God's plan for the first man and woman was that they would be blessed by God. And blessed so that they could live his word and enjoy his fellowship. Genesis 2.18. This is after God has created Adam. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And in fact, the Lord brings Adam to a place of need where he sees after he names all the animals, there is not a helper fit for him. And it's after that awareness and knowledge of his need, his dependency, his inadequacy to carry out his role as God's child that he is put to sleep and God creates the perfect servant helper for him. And when he awakes, he sees Eve and he rejoices and he exclaims with joy, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's just an incredible joy to see the way in which God has provided through his grace and through his blessing and through his word, the perfect servant helper for him. Goodness and grace. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the model from the beginning. This is what we were created to be. From the beginning, God's perfect and holy love for his children has crafted us to be blessed by his goodness and grace according to his word. And that's the caveat, is it not? According to his word, not according to what we think. And his desire is that we would know the joy and goodness of being loved and blessed by a perfect and good father. But he also does this, brothers and sisters, so that we would rightly know who we are. We are God's children. We are his creation. We are not God. And he does this so we know who God is. He is our good father and he is our creator. Brothers and sisters, it's a tragedy. When a child does not rightly know who his or her father is. And we were created, brothers and sisters, to know God as our father. We were created to know him as the blesser and giver of every good gift. We were not created to live a life of independence from God and his blessing and his goodness. We were not created, brothers and sisters, I hate to tell you this, to live the life of the Declaration of Independence about fighting for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not in Genesis 1 and 2. 
That might be better than most other declarations in other countries. I'll give you that. But that's not what the original intent was. From the beginning, we were created, brothers and sisters, to be needy and desperate and dependent on God's goodness and His grace and His love. Brothers and sisters, why do healthy babies cry for milk? Why do they cry for milk? Is it a bad thing that they're crying for milk? They were created to have their mother's milk so that they could grow and be healthy. And so that need is a good need. It's a God-given need. It's a God-given desperation for them because God knows what they need. Why do babies cry to be held? Is it a bad thing? No. They're desperate for what they were created to have and be blessed by, a mother's love. And as I think of my two boys, if you've got boys, they're different from gals, right? I always wondered, why, why do these boys always have to be outside? Why do we always have to be doing physical stuff from the moment we wake up to the time we go down? Why do they eat ravenously? Okay, well, these are good problems to have. They're needy for what is good. They were created to be that way. They were created to be boys. They were created to be outside. They were created to run. They were created to do those things. These are not bad things. And so you see, brothers and sisters, to be poor in spirit, to be aware that in and of ourselves, we are spiritually bankrupt. We don't have all the goodness that we need, that God has a perfect plan throughout the course of our life and maturity, that he's planned ahead of time, that we might be blessed and received his goodness and grow in the knowledge of his love. That's a good thing. It warms God's heart. And that's why it delights the Lord when we go to him in prayer and we ask for his help. That's why it delights the Lord when we go to him first and say, we have a problem. We have a concern that we cannot fix. We weren't meant, brothers and sisters, to have it all together. We were created, brothers and sisters, to walk and to hold the hand of and to live by the word of the God who does have it all together. And that is a blessed and sweet place to be. And when we come to Genesis 3, what you see is that Adam and Eve decide that this blessed life of God's grace is something that they do not want. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be needy. We want to be able to make our own decisions. We want to be able to run our show. We want to be our own king. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be self-serving. We will be self-centered. And we see, brothers and sisters, the world in which we are surrounded and the nation in which we live, which is falling apart and divided because we're clawing at one another to get what we think we need in order to live a life that in our eyes is independent, self-sufficient, and blessed. Brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom of the world. But praise God, it's not the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our next point. Could I have my next slide, please? The Lord loves and saves us by showing us our desperate need for His grace. The Lord loves and saves us by showing us our desperate need for His grace. 
Okay, now look, this slide is not entirely true. There's a caveat, okay? You can take it in the wrong way. Okay, obviously the Lord did much more than just showing us our need. He sent his son, our Lord and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross for us. He rose from the grave. But as you look at all of that very wide angle, what does it show us? That God would have to send his son to die on the cross for us. That we have sins that we need to be forgiven of, even if we're the best of people. It shows us that we're spiritually inadequate for God's kingdom. That we don't have enough. That all we have in this world is funny money. And that when we come into God's kingdom, it ain't worth a lick. And what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that repeatedly God's pattern of coming in and delivering people and removing them from the kingdoms of this world and bringing them back into the family and restoring them to the place that he had planned for them all the time, Genesis 1 and 2. He does so in the very beginning by revealing to them their spiritual poverty, by showing them, even if they are rich in this world, that they can't hold it all together. And so I wanted to walk you through some of these very quickly. You're familiar with them. They're Sunday school stories, and you can go and read them in more detail. But I want you to see the pattern. In Genesis 6-8, it says, But Noah found favor with the Lord. But Noah found favor, that's grace, unmerited favor with the Lord. And what's the outcome of that, brothers and sisters? He gets to build an ark. Lucky Noah. Can you imagine that? No rain, whatever, all those time, all the ridicule out there pounding nails. Telling his sons to get pitch and tar and bitumen and all the rest of that sort of stuff to seal up. Oh, happy day. And then he gets to be in an ark when it gets flooded. Now he's materially rich, is he not? He's not a homeless person. He's got a lot of animals in that boat. But do you think he was calling upon the name of the Lord and waiting for the rain to stop? Do you think he was waiting for the time that he could get out of that place? Do you think he was dependent on the Lord? Can't go anywhere. Sending out doves. And so we see that God begins the process of a new life for a new world that's cleansed of its wickedness. And even as Noah comes out with Noah in very, very graphic terms, seeing his spiritual poverty that he's in way above his head and that he's entirely dependent, but he's entirely dependent on a God who is good, who is loving and who is gracious and is providing for his every need. And then we come to Genesis 12 through 25 to a man called Abram. And what does the Lord do when he begins to save Abram? He actually tells him to leave everything in the ancient Near East that was considered to be your entire security, your entire life. No 401k, no savings. You live basically by your family and your territory and your tribe, right? And God appears to Abram, who's living in an idolatrous region, Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls him to leave his family and his country behind and to go to a land that Abram has not seen. And so Abram goes from a guy who's known, whose family's established, and people know them in the area, and everything is taken care of, 
to becoming a stranger and a sojourner who must wander through the land. And he's dependent on the hospitality of others, but most of all, he's dependent on the protection of God and God's grace in order to take care of him and his family. And how many wonderful children does Abram have? In the ancient Near East, you're poor if you don't have kids. He's got absolutely none. And even with God's promises, he still doesn't have any. And what does he have to depend on? The only thing he can go upon is God's word. He has to live by faith in God's promise. And the only thing he has to show for it, initially, is God's presence and God's word in his life. Of course, as time goes on, there is financial prosperity that comes. But we see that when God comes into Abram's life and begins, he begins by making him aware and bringing him to a place of spiritual poverty and destitution where he is dependent on the Lord, not only spiritually, but financially as well. And then we come to the Exodus with Moses, the prince of Egypt, who loses everything and becomes a fugitive, a shepherd in Midian, And ultimately, the Lord uses him to be the shepherd of his people, who after he saves them and brings them out of Egypt, where does he bring them to? The Hyatt Hotel and the Four Seasons in Hawaii? He brings them to the wilderness. And what does the Lord say to remind them of why he's doing this? Deuteronomy 8.2. If you have your Bibles, have a look at it. It's worth looking at. Deuteronomy 8.2. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you and testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you understand and you know that you don't live by bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you know that and you own that. And how did the children of Israel respond? Well, they didn't particularly like it. They didn't want it. And they grumbled and complained. And they tried to kill Moses. They would have rather been back in the kingdoms of this world in Egypt with the, with the, with the leeks and the garlic, right? But then you come to the pinnacle. King David. He's a king. Palace. Jerusalem. Many good things. But you go back in his story and you see his ancestry. You see Ruth, the Moabitess, right? And what happens to her as she leaves her family? It's because of God and because of following Naomi and her saying, your God shall be my God. And she follows Naomi and she loses everything that she had in the area of Moab. And as she comes and becomes a member of God's people, she comes as a second class citizen. What does she have to do for her existence? She's got to glean barley in the fields which are left over from all the other people who have harvested. She is poor in every sense of the word. And she is dependent on the goodness and grace of God. And this is who the Lord uses 
to bring to Boaz and ultimately to bring King David. And we see, brothers and sisters, the same pattern in King David where God comes and he anoints King David and says, you're going to be king. And he has this brief conquering moment with Goliath. And then after that, he lives for many years as a fugitive, living in caves and living on handouts from other people. And he's so hungry at one point in time, he has to eat the showbread, the religious bread that's set apart for worship, Because he and his men have nothing else to eat. They are so desperate, they have to eat the bread that has been set aside for the worship and for the priests of God. And what does King David say? Psalm 40, 17. He says, as for me, this is King David, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And then again, King David in Psalm 75, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. David was the man after God's own heart. And he saw himself in the presence of the Lord as being a man who was poor and needy but who was filled with great joy and great hope because God, not men, God was his king and God was his deliverer. And the theological dictionary of the New Testament writes, God's true spiritual people are the needy who are oppressed by the wicked within Israel and whose stronghold is God himself. Consequently, they cry to God for help and he delivers them. And there's a double whammy that comes up here is that those who are poor because of their relationship with God end up becoming hated by false believers, especially in the nation of Israel because their lives serve as a rebuke because their lives are rich in the grace of God and the presence of God and their lives serve as an indictment of all those who profess to be God's people, but are doing everything that they can to fill their pockets and be unjust and to get ahead. And that, of course, you know, is King David's life. And as you fast forward, you see that his heir and his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is no different. Though he is the son of God, he comes down into the family of a carpenter living in Nazareth. He becomes a fugitive who has to go to Egypt and then comes back to Nazareth. And he lives a life not of great means or sophistication or respectability, but he lives a life that is dependent on the grace of God every step of the way. And Jesus is showing us that this is pleasing to the Lord and he's showing us that this is the life he's come to give. A life that is poor from the world's perspective. A life in light of the Lord that is dependent and needy. But a life that God cherishes and highly esteems and will take care of and be the protector and in his time filled with goodness and grace and blessing according to his word. And this brings us, brothers and sisters, to our Final point for this morning, and I'll close up with this. Poverty of spirit is the primary hallmark of Christ's new and blessed life of grace. Poverty of spirit is the primary hallmark of Christ's new and blessed life of grace. This life of being dependent, brothers and sisters, 
on the grace of God, of being needy for the grace of God, of being desperate for the grace of God, of living where God is your protector and not men or the size of your pocketbook because of God, not because of your sin, because of God, that this is the place that God has brought you. And that's a distinction. This is not because you've got a gambling problem. This is not because you're living in a particular way. This is because You've heard the call of God. You're following. It's a life of repentance and faith in Christ. And guess what, brothers? Surprise, surprise. The Lord is going to bring you to a place where there are challenges and difficulties in your life so that you can see, yes, you don't have what it takes, but you do have a king and you do have a father and you do have a savior who does have what it takes And he delights in you and he will take care of you. And in his due time, he will make sure that you are pleasing to him. And so that's why the Apostle Paul boasts, is it not? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Because when I am weak, then I am strong, right? Does he celebrate his education His amazing education. Does he celebrate his Roman citizenship? Does he celebrate all the famous people he used to know? Well, Philippians 3, he says, it's rubbish. I counted all loss because there's only one thing of worth. And what is that one thing of worth? It's knowing Christ. And you see, as we come to the Gospels, this treasure of God's grace that God gives us is nothing less than his very own son. This is the great treasure. And as Christ comes into our lives, brothers and sisters, as he stands next to us with his mercy and grace, we begin to see we're not as good as we thought we were. We're not as nice as we thought we were. We don't have it together. We may do ministry. We may be a pastor. We may have a seminary degree from the master's seminary. But when you stand next to Jesus, it's not worth anything, is it? Our righteousness is not enough. But that's where the good news of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he gives freely, he gives generously, he gives in abundance. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we begin to see that the riches of this world pale in comparison to the riches of God's grace and the riches of God's grace he's given to us in one person and one person alone. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's the disciples, brothers and sisters, in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus gathers them to himself. Robert A. Gulick, New Testament scholar, says, the poor in spirit are those who stand without pretense before God, stripped of all self-sufficiency, all self-security, all self-righteousness. And Charles Quarles writes, Poor in spirit means beggarly in spirit. Someone who is keenly aware that he or she is spiritually destitute and must rely entirely on the grace of God for salvation. Brothers and sisters, for Christians, who's the exception to that rule? Is this just for missionaries and for pastors? Absolutely not. And brothers and sisters, if you're going to follow Christ and answer his call, you are going to see that because he loves you, he is repeatedly going to bring you into places that are hard and difficult. He's going to bring you into places that are way above your pay grade, 
It may be taking care of elderly parents. It may be a sibling who is not saved. It may be a work situation that is hard and that is difficult, that will not resolve. It may be a chronic illness. And it's not because you're not blessed if you're there because of God's word. It's because he loves you and he's bringing you to that place to show you his love and grace that is sufficient for you. And he's there to show you that you have a treasure that is greater than anything this world has to offer. And he's there to show you that he is faithful and he is with you and that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And you in turn as you're comforted by the Lord will be able to comfort others with that truth and that reality. Brothers and sisters, the hallmark of God's grace in your life, the hallmark of his blessing, the hallmark of his presence that he is your Lord and King, it begins, brothers and sisters, with genuine poverty of spirit, of a humble and desperate dependence on the grace of the Lord for everything. And that's why those who bear this hallmark are people who pray morning and evening, I asked my boys last night, so tell me some of the guys who you think in the Bible were poor in spirit after we talked about this. And one answer was Daniel. Look at Daniel. He wasn't financially poor. He was a prince in the economy of Babylon. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often did he pray? Three times a day. Why? Because he was living in a wicked kingdom. And he was desperate, desperate, desperate for the grace of God to sustain him. And so brothers and sisters, where does that leave us? Jesus is not here coming to you and telling you, go out and try and be poor in spirit. We've got it backwards. He's saying that those in whose lives I am present, you are blessed and you are poor in spirit. And because of that, because my grace is in you because you share my life of poverty of spirit. You are a child of God and the kingdom of heaven belongs to you because God's going to give it to you because you are his children. And so if there's anything to take from this, brothers and sisters, first, are we poor in spirit? Or are we rich in the things of this world? Are we numbed out by the pleasures and the entertainment and all the things and all the whistles and bells, so much so that it's really... Whether we have Jesus or not, it's no big deal because I've got plans Friday night, A, B, C, D, and E. Are we poor in spirit? And how do we become poor in spirit? Well, brothers and sisters, there's only one way and we look at the disciples. It's being in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ has given us that opportunity through his word and through his gospel and through prayer for people who are desperate for him. And so I just want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, whether you're rich in the Spirit or poor in the Spirit, our most desperate need is to be with Christ, to spend time with him. Because as you spend time with him, you cannot help but see that he is everything and we are nothing, but he is ready to give to those who are desperate and needy and spiritually poor. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how we need you. How freely you give. 
Lord, this day we confess all too often our lives are filled with the false blessings of this world when our most desperate need is you. So even so, Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, be our King and our Lord. And would we share with you a life of blessing that is indeed poor in spirit and new. In your name we pray, amen.